Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. It looks like the DM rolled rather low on that deck save. Liches be tripping. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my <laughs> co-host James Daly. And today we're talking liches. I'm not sure if Ian like almost laughed or I rolled at me. <laughs> it was a laugh. I promise. <laughs> okay. You promise, I promise. Yeah. This time. <laughs> For reals. <laughs> uh, yeah. Quick roll persuasion. It has been a week and we yes, needed this little bit of release. So yeah. For the record, we are recording this the night of June 24th. And there was some uh, pretty substantial news that hit around lunchtime today. So the Supreme Court did what the Supreme Court did. And friends and family, I will say I have friends and families on both sides of the political spectrum. A very large portion of my Facebook are people very obviously upset, very obviously scared. I have friends that live in state that I've talked about, like, I need to move out of state just so I know my daughters will be safe as they grow up, which is terrifying. On the other side, I have people reveling in people's misery doing a whole haha look we finally got what we got type thing and it is very very disheartening out there so a good dive feet first into a realm of fantasy escapism i'm all for it (laughs) so we're just going to talk about wizards that kill themselves to live forever yeah Um, you know again just a a lighthearted topic because a lighthearted topic for today (laughs) that said going through i don't think we're going to go too in depth to the process but if we do again there should possibly be a suicide trigger warning. We're not going to get into a bunch of the psychological state on this because this is done more out of a greed for power than a depression thing. But if the topic does bother you, you may want to skip. If we're going to discuss things, we will give you a heads up before we delve into topics. Yeah, definitely a suicide trigger warning for this episode. As James said, we're not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but there is ritualized suicide as a part of becoming a lich so it is something that is going to come up yes again we're not going to dwell on it but it is an element of what we're going to be discussing tonight but like i said lighthearted topic all about liches i do have to say liches are one of my favorite fantasy type monsters and personally i love going into folklore i love mythology and I was kind of perplexed about, I'm like, you know what, where do liches actually come from? Because I can't, I mean, obviously vampires, you've got Eastern Europe and lycanthropes tend to be more centralized Europe, Western Europe-ish. You know, you've got mummies, you've got fae, you've got all of them. I'm like, where did liches actually come from? I was expecting this deep dive. They are truly an American creation. I'm kind of stoked. Like jazz and cartoons, this is one that America just, hey, you did it right. Well done. Yeah. So yeah, the <laughs> lich as presented in D&D is Basically as old as D&D itself. It does predate D&D a little bit, but not by much. The first mention of Lich in D&D lore was in the Greyhawk setting book in 1975. So in the original D&D setting. Right. It was described as a skeletal monster that was formerly a magic user or a magic user cleric multi-class in life that retained its spellcasting abilities and had a fear aura. That's basically the sum of what it was originally. And I mean, pulling something out of more or less thin air or the ether, not too bad for a monster. I mean, you need something kind of scary. Here's a giant scary thing. It's going to throw some spells at you. Not too squishy. I like it. And apparently, Gary Gygax, whenever he was writing the Lich in the Greyhawk setting book, 
took the inspiration from a short story called The Sword of the Sorcerer by Gardner Francis Fox from a short story collection he published in 1969 called Kothar Barbarian Swordsman. And he actually confirmed in an interview later in life that he drew inspiration for the Lich from the antagonist of that story and that he and Gardner Fox, that their families were actually friends in real life. That's awesome. And that's something Gary Gygax did. You hear several stories with this with Gygax and like his son, they would sit around and as they were trying to populate monsters and monster manuals, they would just go back and they would watch old films or, or read old stories and kind of like, hey, that's awesome. How do we bring this to the books and the tables? And so a lot of the lore we have, I mean, a lot of the old D&D is, let us say, very generously borrowed uh, from various lores and stories and that's why a lot of these are so relatable because these are just well done he just hey i want to fight this monster let's build up a stat block so i mean homebrewing in that fashion and we've talked about this before is very much where DD came from so you know people well, it's not in the book it doesn't exist well no i mean this is exactly what they did hey that looked cool on the movie let's do it yeah early DD was very much immersed in pulp fantasy pulp sci-fi yes i mean because that was the material there you didn't really have the epic stories that you have now with writers like brandon sanderson that sort of material just wasn't there no you had the very epic but very dry works of someone like c.s lewis or J.R.R. tolkien or you had the pulp fantasy stories you know your conan the barbarians and things of that nature you know those were the two sides of the spectrum and you didn't really have a whole lot in the middle at that point in history and speaking of kind of this is a story i love to share i've shared it many times my dad has dyslexia it's not severe dyslexia but he does have dyslexia i get hints of it when i'm stressed but he had a difficult time learning to read through school he was interested in the conan the barbarian stories and he wanted to know what happened in the stories and that's what got him to sit down and learn to read as he wanted to know what were happening in these pulp stories so again if your kid's sitting down with a DD book a comic book a young adult novel whatever it is encourage that because it can go a long long way and again this is just one of those things that tie in you find inspiration wherever you find inspiration so yeah go for it absolutely absolutely reading is reading it doesn't matter if it's one of the classics or if it's a graphic novel or if it's just a simple comic book it doesn't matter reading is reading read what you want to read and don't let people dissuade you from reading because they think that it is beneath you read what you enjoy and reading what i call brain candy sometimes you know just something kind of cheesy and trashy and whatever leads you to interest and leads you into deeper reading and the more comfortable you are with reading if it's not a chore if it's not something people are going to belittle you with or you struggle with you're going to become more comfortable and you're going to read more anyway because again it's where our stories come from yeah all right let's get back on topic <laughs> this is this isn't topic i promise you i will tie it yeah. in later damn it i promise it'll happen <laughs> all right so the term lich in literature does predate D&D. The earliest fantasy sort of reference to a lich actually comes from an H.P. Lovecraft story, The Thing on the Doorstep. I've missed this one. But the lich in that story is not a wizard who has embraced undeath as a means for cheating death. It is instead a wizard who has possessed 
a corpse to do its bidding. You know, it's basically driving this corpse like a puppeteer. Okay. So it is more of a body swap sort of thing than a cheat death sort of thing. Gotcha. And that is a form of lichdom that we can look into later is the whole body swapping type thing. And you see this in a lot of lore and stories and horror. Even today, that whole concept of a body swapper still does. And so, yes, this is a form of lichdom. Yeah. But if you want to go way further back, if you want to tie into where the word lich comes from, it is derived from Old English. It is a word that simply means body or corpse. And it is further derived from the Proto-Germanic word lichau. And in medieval and early modern times, um, a church would have this covered gate. It would be just like a deep gate, just sort of standing by itself, usually off to the side of the church near where you would enter the cemetery, and it would be called a lich gate. And that was where the bodies of the dead would be placed on a bier under cover out of the elements, awaiting the clergyman to come and administer the funerary rites and then be processed into the cemetery to be buried. Um, there's actually a really good example of a Lich Gate. If you've ever played the game Graveyard Keeper, which is fun, you can get it on Steam. I think you can get it on Xbox, probably PS4 as well, PS5, whatever you're playing with. Think if you like Stardew Valley, think Stardew Valley, but graveyards. It's actually a really, <laughs> really fun, well done game. It's not super long. It maybe took 20, 30 hours to complete. It wasn't terrible, but it was a fun game. But you do have a Lich Gate where, you know, the corner of the people come, they drop off bodies and you got to chuck the bodies in here and you set them up and like you can dissect them for experiments to learn different things or you can prepare them for different types of burial. And then you have to make your graveyard look pretty because that's how you get more people to visit your church, which is more money. So you can buy more stuff and do more experiments. Like I said, the game is great. But yeah, a great example <laughs> of a Lich Gate here. Sounds <laughs> like a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. So the process for making slash becoming a lich was first detailed in an article called Blueprint for a Lich. Okay. It was written by Len Lakofka in Dragon Magazine number 26 in 1970. Early, early. Early, early. I think if my research is correct, Len Lakofka was the primary writer behind a lot of the AD&D Van Richten's Guide to X books. Gotcha. So Van Richten's Guide to Liches, to Vampires, to Werewolves, all of those sorts of books. I need to get the new Van Richten book anywhere. That's also on my to-buy list. That is yet another one that my lovely, friendly local game store got me with the alternate cover art. Oh, awesome. I bet that's beautiful. It is. So, yes, yet another shout out to Dwayne's World in Kingsport. They are a great shop. Dwayne is amazing. Anyway. Rabbit trails everywhere. Yeah, I know, right? So within that article, it was the first time that the term soul jar was referenced as part of the process. Okay. It wasn't called a phylactery at that point. It was just referred to as a soul jar, as a container that you put your soul in. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, even the term phylactery is a fairly vague term. It's more of a Greek term that basically means amulet. So, hey, you need a necklace. So a jar on a necklace or something to hold a something, which I kind of like because this leads a lot to the DM or the player to what their phylactery is going to be. You can go from super serious and spooky to, oh my God, stupid and crazy, uh, however you want to go. I think, you know, if you have the big bad evil guy who's absolutely terrifying with just a little bit of humor because he's just a little off, maybe. I always find that a great time. Yeah. So the first time it was actually referred to as a phylactery 
was in the 1985 Endless Quest book, Lair of the Lich. So the Endless Quest books, for those who are not familiar, are sort of solo adventure books that are based around basically a choose-your-own-adventure type path. There were a bunch of them that TSR put out in the 80s, and Wizards has put out a couple of lines of them fairly recently, but most of them were published by TSR in the 80s. They were intended to be educational supplements, you know, to teach math and problem solving and reading comprehension and those sorts of things. Again, I love games and education, and I kind of want to do nothing crazy, but do like a choose your own adventure book campaign where you go and like turn to page 53 and then you've got a table that you roll and okay i rolled a six okay there's 1d6 kobolds that are in the room you fight you go do you open the chest do you leave the chest alone turn to pay that would be so much fun that'd be a great little thing to do okay inspiration strikes everywhere (laughs) and then so the lich the demi lich and the arch lich as well as the description of a lich storing its life force in a phylactery in that context have all been present in every edition since the Monsters Compendium Volume 1 for AD&D 2nd Edition in 1989. So from 1989 to present, the general classification of what makes a lich a lich has been crystallized and codified. Yes, there is very little question of what makes a lich anymore. And again, considering this is something that came out so relatively modernly, this has firmed up really well. And again, a lich holds weight with a vampire, a ghost, a banshee, a wraith, an orc, you know, I mean, these things that go forever back. And again, it fits perfectly. So well done. So what is a lich? I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but what is a lich? Boil it down to its very basic components. A lich is a mortal spellcaster, typically arcane, but you can have divine liches, which has separated their soul from their body in order to achieve free will undead immortality. This kind of also goes with the fact, and I've seen this meme a bunch, and people are playing with it, and they've done some cool things, but can you have a ghost and a zombie from the same body? Yes, it's called a lich. Not exactly. Yeah, because the ghost or the spirit, the soul of the lich, while in the phylactery, controls the corpse of the body. I mean, that's pretty much what that is, right? No, because the consciousness never leaves the body. They remove the soul from the body and store it within the phylactery. Phylactery? Okay. I mean, I can, eh, I would debate that, but we can discuss this later. We'll go in and there are reasons and points why I would debate (laughs) this. But let us continue. (laughs) I will agree that you can have a ghost and a zombie from the same body Mm -hmm. because the ghost is the intellect and the zombie is the meat suit. (laughs) Just a pure id. Yeah, it it is the material because ghosts are incorporeal by definition. So all of the things that make you you that aren't your meat suit become the ghost. Okay. And all of the things that are you that are only the meat suit become the zombie. zombie. Okay, that's fair. But I mean, the zombie's generally interested in eating. If you love the old X-Files episode, after they eat, then they're going to do the next most important thing in the human drive, which they showed as dancing. Yeah, dancing. We'll we'll, we'll go with that one. (laughs) Yeah, sure. According to Christopher Moore, first we feast and then Ikea, but... Anyway, that's an obscure one. You would have to read The Stupidest Angel to get that one. Okay. Anyway, so becoming a lich is a very dangerous and arduous process, one which requires access to high-level spells, rare ingredients, and a substantial cache of coin and souls. Most of the liches that have 
come into existence seek out fiends or dark gods or eldritch entities to grant them a boon of the knowledge necessary to perform the proper rituals to become a lich. It isn't something that is readily available. It is something that you typically will have to seek out someone who knows. And another lich isn't going to tell you. Absolutely not. And that's why, again, a lot of these, especially early on, were wizard slash cleric multi-class, because in a large part of these, you did need some divine inspiration or some divine assistance. Going through with some other, I mean, if you were at the pinnacle of your arcane ability, you might have been able to study and ponder and figure the process out, but that would have been so exceedingly rare. So yeah, like I said, early on, it was this kind of cleric, you know, divine magic, arcane magic kind of doing their thing together. I mean, not only is it unfeasible to think that you just happened upon it and figured it out on your own, because there's not really a way that you can experiment with this. This is true. You would have to work it out purely theoretically, and then you had one chance to see if your theory was right. (laughs) This is you got one shot. (laughs) Because if you mess it up, it's over. There are no second chances to this. The most common patron for lichdom is Orcus, the demon prince of undeath. Almost every canon lich in D&D draws their knowledge from a deal with Orcus. Yeah, again, these aren't generally fuzzy, happy creatures. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And again, you are going to want a god with a death domain or an undeath domain. They're probably not going to be good aligned. Let's just go ahead and say it. Not going to happen. So there is that as well. Going through as you produce the spell too, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but even if you have everything correct and you have the knowledge and you have the components, there is, at least with the older versions, still like a 10% chance that even if you do everything perfectly, the spell is going to fizzle and you're boned. Yep, pretty much. So liches are considered categorically evil and they are one of the monsters that I am perfectly okay with leaving them categorically evil. Because the acts required to become a lich, most notably the ritual sacrifice of other mortals to power your phylactery with their souls, are objectively evil deeds. Yes. and It is objectively evil to kill a person, (laughs) siphon out their soul, and feed it to your phylactery, where the soul is consumed and rendered into its component parts to fuel your soul to allow you to live on. Yes. And again, breaking down, you know, what is D&D evil? Again, seeking personal gain at the expense of others. Yeah, this one checks all those boxes right there. Yes. There is no sugarcoating this one. My definition of evil equals selfish totally fits here. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so how do you become a lich? Let's do it. Taking notes. (laughs) Yeah, what is the canon process of how you become a lich. So in newer editions, it isn't very well laid out, probably to keep players from becoming liches and upsetting game balance, but whatever. Yeah, you know, there's a thing. You do you. (laughs) I haven't been able to find it and look it up to read through what it was, but there was a way to become a lich in fourth edition. Oh, well, in an official published fourth edition process to become a lich fourth edition never happened so that's why you can't find it (laughs) but most of what i'm pulling from is coming from second and third Third. edition sources okay so So step one step one you need to be either a divine or arcane caster okay so let's go ahead and round this out again you are needing 
access to some high level spells. So like a level one mage, level 19 barbarian, you're not going to be a lich. Ain't happening. Probably not. Uh, Not without a whole lot of help. You're going to need some levels here, bud. (laughs) Now, in third edition, in the book Libris Mortis, they had several examples of different lich NPCs that you could use. And there was one, the lowest level one that they had in there was a level 11 goblin arcanist. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds about right. Level 10 plus definitely level 11 feels right for this. But most of your liches are going to be somewhere in the area of level 17 to 20. Yeah, again. Um, Because that's the point when you start getting ninth level spells. Yeah, and again, you're coming up against a lich. It's not going to be a squish. So first you need to be a caster. Then you need to perform the ritual to make a phylactery. A place to put your soul. Okay, it's a soul in a box. I got my soul in a box. Wait. Get a soul in a box, girl. One, get a box. Two, put a soul in the box. (laughs) Three, make them open the box. (laughs) Don't let them open the box. Oh, okay. Never let them open the box. Skip three. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have to perform a ritual to remove your soul from your body and place it into the phylactery. And this is where that fizzle chance comes in. Yes. And again, you can do everything right. And if you roll that D10 and roll a one, roll a new character, bud. You're done. And finally, once you have successfully performed all of this, you got to feed souls into your phylactery. Yeah. Otherwise, your body will crumble away to dust. Because the phylactery will over time consume souls, not necessarily yours within, but if it starts to consume yours, then you do start to fade. So yeah, you constantly have to fuel this magic, which... They never really say how much or what the consumption rate is. Again, I would leave that to DM discretion, maybe like a soul per decade, a soul per year. Again, that's very vague. Some of the canon examples of liches, a soul can last anywhere from a couple of weeks to a few months. Okay. The one individual I found that actually had a timeline said that she had to consume three souls a year. Okay, I like that. In order to maintain her phylactery. As a pure DM flavor, I would take this and I would like pull up the NPCs or the players and I would tie the length of time that the soul lasts to the will stat score of the player. Because again, that is your interpersonal strength and stuff like that. So you'd think a person or a soul that had more of that strength of spirit, you would say, would last longer than someone with with a lower stat score in that ability. Again, pure DM flavor, but I think that would fit really well. All right, so in second edition, the Monstrous Manual did give some instructions for how to turn a wizard into a lich. Some actual step-by-step instructions. Okay. So first, you create the phylactery by crafting an object. The object had to be of the finest craftsmanship and worth at least 1,500 gold per level of the wizard. So for a 17th level wizard, that is a 25,500 gold object. For a 20th level wizard, that's a 30,000 gold object. Yeah, again, this is not going to be a cheaply done endeavor. No. And for these types of boxes, I think, like, if you go to museums or things and you find, like, the old, I can never say this term correct, but the uh, reliquary? Reliquary? Reliquary. There we go. I can never say that right. It's one of those words (laughs) I never say and I only read. But that would be perfect. Something you would hold, like, a sacred object in would make a perfect phylactery. Absolutely. Or, you know, just an old jar of Kool-Aid. Whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Old mason jar. (laughs) It's Granny Lich. (laughs) So you create the phylactery by 
enchanting this object with the spells magic jar, reincarnation, and permanency. Okay. So you are turning it into a vessel that can hold a soul with magic jar. You're throwing reincarnation in to allow you to rebuild a body from the essence within and then permanency to make sure that it doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, all makes sense. Okay. So the phylactery is usually a container, often a metal box that is inscribed with or filled with parchment that's inscribed with various magical phrases which are used to bind the lich's soul and also to consume the other souls pulled into the vessel to power the lich's undeath. I'm okay with this so far. Again, making sense where you have the body and the spirit bound to a physical case, generally a metallic object. I'm going to hate to say this, but I'm, I'm kind of picturing... Full metal alchemist? Yeah, Alphonse is kind of a phylactery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So the phylactery cannot be an object that is already magical. And you cannot add further enchantments to it once it becomes a phylactery. I like that. From a DM standpoint, I would say that the magic somehow interferes, kind of like if you're gaming and someone throws on the old microwave and you start lagging out that with your Wi-Fi, that kind of thing. Would be a way to explain that. Otherwise, right. just it's D&D lore and you throw dice at the player and it's done. <laughs> However, this is my personal note. There's nothing to say that you can't place your phylactery within a series of other magical trapped boxes that set off magical booby traps for anyone trying to get in. Oh my God. A phylactery and a Russian nesting doll. <laughs> yes. That, that's exactly my concept. So as long as there is an empty space within five feet of the phylactery, there's no limit to how crazy you can get. You can put it 40 layers deep. I love it. As long as the distance between the phylactery and the open space outside of those 40 layers is less than five feet, because there has to be an empty space within five feet for the body to reform in. Okay. So you can put like a silver sphere on the outside of everything. And on the inside of that silver sphere, you inscribe a glyph that whenever it is opened up, it casts an orb of annihilation. Okay. So it's, you know, this giant ball of disintegrate everything. But at the same time, the layer right underneath it, whenever it gets exposed, it casts an anti-magic field around its surface. I would advise against anti-magic field in this case, but not a terrible idea. No, because because anti-magic field... I mean, it's only going to last for a certain amount of time. And all it does is it keeps the phylactery from actually recreating your body while it sits within the anti-magic field. As soon as the anti-magic field goes away, it goes back to functioning normally. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking like if somehow the anti-magic field stayed up, that would be an issue. But it's only going to stay up for as long as the orb of annihilation stays up. Gotcha. I would even throw it last... You might have it last eight hours just to make sure. Yeah, I can see that. But eight hours over the span of the 1D 10 days that it takes to reconstitute a body. Right. That's nothing. I would probably throw something like imprisonment or hold person if you could do it for a longer set of time because that phylactery is going to be hungry if they've got that far in through these spells just in case. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to throw things on there like power word pain, power word stun, power word kill. Yeah. Oh, cloud kill would be a great one. to Cloud kill imprisonment, like you said, um, gate. Yeah. Have it open a gate and summon something big and nasty. I'm going to come in and smash whatever happens to be standing there in front of it. Oh, look, it's Terry the Trask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can do a lot with this. Yeah. 
And the whole Russian nesting doll concept is the perfect way to deal with somebody, making sure that nobody gets to your phylactery. Because if you die and you get reconstituted in proximity to your phylactery, you will see the condition of the protections around your phylactery because you're within five feet. Right. And so what you do is you see, okay, there's some layers that are missing. I'm going to take the next four weeks and just replace them. Right. Yeah. (laughs) No. And this is why I argue that the soul of the body of the lich is not within the body of the lich, but rather controlling the body through via the phylactery because the phylactery is the point and source of life for the soul and the body if you were to quote quote kill the lich without destroying the phylactery the body will drop and crumple but it will eventually reconstitute but for that time that the body is destroyed the lich still exists within the frame of the phylactery so you can destroy the body but not the lich which means the intellect and the entity of the lich is separate from the physical form. Okay. We might have this philosophical debate at a later date. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Just to keep our episode from going... Too terribly long? Going to three hours? (laughs) You know. So, according to the third edition supplement, Libris Mortis, a lich can only ever create a single phylactery. If its phylactery is destroyed, the lich remains, but its next death will be permanent. So, in this case, Voldemort cheated. Voldemort would not technically be a lich though his horcruxes were for all intents and purposes phylacteries again per dnd lore you get one not seven he kind of cheated in the way because he never fully removed his soul either so again he fragmented his soul and he turned the fragments so each of the horcruxes are basically fragments of a phylactery Okay, I could see that. It is a collective phylactery as opposed to a singular entity phylactery. I could see that. Okay, yeah. So we will just call him a dirty simulich. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Once you have crafted your phylactery, you then have to make a, quote, potion of extreme toxicity, which is enchanted with a series of spells. And I'm going to actually read this. This is the description for the potion of lichdom that was presented in the AD&D first edition supplement, Lords of Darkness. Okay. The mage may blend several forms of natural poisons, including arsenic, belladonna, nightshade, heart's worry, and the blood of any of a number of poisonous monsters. Also necessary are a heart, preferably from a sentient creature, and the venom from a number of rare creatures such as wyverns, giant scorpions, and exotic snakes. If any error is made in the formula or in the concoction and distillation of the potion, irrevocable death results. All right. When the ingredients are properly mixed, the following spells must be cast upon the potion. Wraith form, cone of cold, feign death, animate dead, and permanency. The potion must be drunk during a night with a full moon. Upon ingestion, a system shock roll is required. If the mage passes the test, then he has been transformed by the potion into a dreaded lich. If the mage doesn't survive the shock, he is dead forever with no hope of any sort of resurrection. Not even a wish will undo the lethal potion. Wow. Only the direct intervention of a deity or the dungeon master has any hope (laughs) of resurrecting a mage killed in this manner. Wow. 
there is a lot to unpack in that one. One among those that DM is God. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wow. Not even a wish. That's impressive. Yeah, because you're sundering your soul. Right. If you do it wrong, you're basically losing your essence, losing your soul. Your essence is going into oblivion. No, I mean, I love it. That's just like the amount of lore they built up for that spell is just wow. And again, the types of spell, you know, you got Feign Death, you got Wraithworm. These aren't like second and third level spells. So again, this is definitely something, again, your higher levels are, are going to pull off. So Lichdom is not encountered lightly. Yeah. So one of the things about liches is that there are lots of different types of liches. I do want to say before we get into types of liches, the why to lich is definitely a question that should oh, yes. be covered. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and cover that for a little bit. And so for me, as a player, as a real person, lichdom would probably call to me very strongly because these are largely your arcane casters that are so enamored or entangled in the learning of things that they are going to give up their physical form to live forever so they can learn as much as they possibly can and thus gain power. And this is why we talk about, you know, obviously arcane users, magic users. We've mentioned specifically wizards and clerics. You don't get a whole lot of sorcerers going for lichdom because a lot of sorcerers their talent and their power is innate within them it's not something they've learned and gathered so these liches gather knowledge kind of like a dragon would gather treasure you also at least in the third edition books you find bards becoming liches i could see that bards make excellent liches as well i could absolutely see that flipping on the other side talking about the divine you are willing to give up your life for immortality to serve your deity in a physical form forever. And a lot of times, especially whenever you're talking about a divine lich as an adherent to an evil god, lichdom is a reward for good service. Yes, you have done so well. They will bestow lichdom as a reward on their best servants. You are good and effective enough that you're worth the energy and effort to keep you around a bit longer. So keep doing your thing. But typically what they'll do is they will teach them the process, and then it's up to them to get the process right. Right. Well, again, that's the final test. If they're not good or clever enough to pull it off properly, then they weren't worthy of it. And as James said, we will get to that in a little bit. Um, That type of lich is near the bottom of this (laughs) list. (laughs) So again, these are the reasons to become a lich. It's not just, hey, I want to live forever. It's not, hey, I'm just evil. There is something you want to do. It's almost like becoming a wraith, that you are aware enough in your physical form and you have the power to do it, that you are willing to live forever. Because immortality, on the flip side, can be kind of boring. I mean, you got forever. If you have that long day and you're just kind of like, eh, nothing's going on. You have that boring decade, that boring century where nothing's really. There is a lot to digest with eternity and eternal life. And it can be a punishment in its own right. The other thing with the Lich too is the Lich generally holds any kind of damage it's taken physically unless its body has been fully reconstituted by a physical death. So any kind of scarring, any kind of physical damage damage, you know, marring, scarring, acid, lost limbs, these stay with the lich more or less forever. So again, this is also something you want your lich to consider as it moves around the world. It's not going to be, hey, I can live forever. I don't have to worry about anything. They are going to be as protective almost of their physical form as a regular mortal would be to a point because if they lose an arm, they ain't flipping through books so easily. Right. Absolutely. Okay, now let's go ahead and talk about different types of liches liches. because, oh boy, we got some variety in our liches. (laughs) The first one 
is the Demi-Lich. The Demi-Lich is probably the oldest of the variant liches yes. that exists in D&D lore. The name suggests that this is a sort of lesser lich, maybe a lich where the process didn't quite work right, but the truth is anything but. Right, absolutely. These things are scary. <laughs> yeah. Demi-liches are liches whose bodies have deteriorated away, leaving only their skull and consciousness and phylactery behind. They have big old floating head. They possess a howl that can instantly slay the weak and instill fear into those strong enough to resist. Nice. That even exists in 5th edition. Yes. The howl of the Demi-lich in 5th edition, you make a DC-19 charisma save i think it is and if you fail you drop to zero hit points you did <laughs> you just drop to zero hit points it's not a save or die because you still get your death saving throws but you, you drop down. to zero hit points and then if you succeed on your saving throw you are frightened until the start of the the demi lich's next turn right you're frightened of the demi lich so yeah it is nasty they also have life drain and energy drain. In older editions, they were actually able to drain levels. Right. That sucked with older editions. <laughs> oh, yeah. So many things drained XP. In 5th edition, their basic attack is a life drain that just deals necrotic damage and heals them for the amount of necrotic damage they deal. The energy drain is actually now a legendary action, which does the same thing, except that it will reduce the target's maximum hit points by the amount of damage dealt. Oh, that can be nasty. And if you hit zero hit points, you die. Yeah. They also have the ability to afflict enemies with curses. They can also control the dust that used to be their bodies to create obscuring clouds or to coalesce into wraith-like forms of their former bodies. So they can actually draw all of the dust that used to be their body into a humanoid form that can walk around. Right. This kind of gives the feel of the original mummy with Brendan Fraser, where he takes that dust form and he kind of sweeps around before he's fully corporeal. Kind of demi-lichous. Again, he's a mummy, not quite, but he still has that control and can make a form out of the dust. Yeah. So in second edition, the curses available were really nasty. They included always being hit by your enemies. So every attack that is made against you automatically hits. Ooh. You always fail your saving throws or you are unable to gain experience points. Oh, did we mention second edition is rough? I mean, second edition just kills player characters. Just <laughs> Second edition yeah. was, I really want to get a second edition campaign rocking. Yeah. And while those curses could be removed using a remove curse, doing so also caused one point of permanent charisma damage. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's just, that is brutal. And like a lich, if a demi lich is destroyed, but the phylactery remains intact, the demi lich's skull is reconstituted after 1d10 days. Okay. So there are two basic categories of demi liches. The first and most common are those who find themselves unable to continue feeding souls into their phylacteries. Um, so some of them are if the lich gets sealed away sufficiently well to where they don't have access to mortals to harvest their souls, they will slowly begin to atrophy. Okay. The others are liches that have grown senile or bored with their prolonged existence, and they just hole up in their catacombs and just stop. 
Like I said, boredom and eternity is definitely something to consider. Going through, I'll let you cover your second one. And then there's actually a third one I read that I really like the concept of, and it ties into some things we discussed earlier okay. as well. So. so the second one are those who anticipate their degeneration and see it as a means to transcend their mortal forms. A very prominent lich in this category is the lich Acerarach who was the creator of the Tomb of Horrors. He saw that this was going to be inevitable, that at some point he was going to be unable to continue feeding souls into his phylactery and his body would decay to dust. And so he prepared specially enchanted gems and implanted them into his eye sockets. And those gems are capable of ripping the souls directly out of mortals. Because, you know, that rogue's totally going to loot that thing. Oh, crap. I know what this reminds me of. Was it last year or 2019? I forget which, but I believe it was in Egypt. They unearthed the long dead mummy with the black gem in the tie. <laughs> it's totally a lich. <laughs> yeah. In second edition, the gems weren't planted in the eye sockets. They were used as replacements for teeth. Okay. So they would have five to eight of these 1d4 plus four gems in place of teeth in the skull. This ties back. There is a Mayan tradition where they would actually drill and then set and glue gems into the teeth. And there is a lot of debate for the reason of that. But if you actually go and look at some Mayan archaeology and stuff, you can see. And one, if dental work makes you squeamish, go ahead and avoid that. But they would actually set gemstones into their teeth this way. So again, there is a historical context for this yeah so in fifth edition with this gem if you fail the dc 19 saving throw i think it's also a charisma saving throw against this ability your soul is ripped out of your body and your physical form and everything it's carrying ceases to exist you are just imprisoned in the gem Ooh, that is nasty until the demi lich gets to a point where they need to feed their phylactery and then they feed you to their phylactery Okay. Um, and then once you have been transferred from the gem to the phylactery your friends have 24 hours because after 24 hours your soul is consumed and there's nothing short of a wish that can actually bring you back okay so going through when i was doing my research and again kind of finding stuff on lichdom is both easy and hard because again these are a fairly new relatively to monsters thing but as we talked about the reasons for lich and that collecting and hoarding of knowledge one of the things that really stuck out to me about a demi and again as a person as a player character would definitely be tempted by or i could see my characters going down where once they had acquired so much knowledge in the physical realm they figured they can't learn anything more at least at the progression that learning is going on the physical realm that they started traveling into the astral realm or the ethereal realm to even gather more knowledge and at this point either they've been gone long enough through an astral projection or some set that they had been able to feed their phylactery as it were or as we've gone down below that they planned to be gone long enough that they would have to set these gems up in order to feed but again these demi liches are strong enough and they have gone beyond regular lichdom in their search and quest of knowledge yes all right next category these are the other one that is absolutely terrifying to any player at the table draco liches because dragons aren't enough and driches aren't enough Mm -hmm. driches liches aren't enough (laughs) 
<laughs> you got a lich in my dragon. You got a dragon in my lich. <laughs> so Draco liches are typically chromatic dragons that embrace sentient undeath to subvert their own mortality, despite their lives being as long as they are. Again, going back, the liching process is not a good thing. So you're probably not going to see a bunch of metallic liches. Well, the reason why you end up having typically chromatic dragons is because the ritual to create a Draco Lich is known and almost exclusively performed by the cult of the dragon, who are worshippers of Tiamat. There's that too. You know, it is closely guarded cult knowledge. And so even if a metallic dragon wanted to become a Draco Lich, it would be hard for them to get access to the knowledge on how to do it. Because... The faction that has the knowledge is antithetical to their existence. <laughs> and again, if you guys want just a free story to run with, I'm going to give you guys this one for free. and I'll, I'll give you the framework and you build it. But you are with an ancient metallic dragon that has tried to infiltrate the cult of the dragon so he can become a Draco Lich for good reasons, maybe to defend against the return of Tiamat or something like that. And so you can run a whole you know, campaign of your party trying to infiltrate the cult of the dragon, getting the materials, getting the knowledge. And then maybe at the end of the thing, your metallic dragon is driven mad in the process of becoming a Draco Lich, and now is the thing you have to stomp down and kill. There you go, free story. <laughs> so, when it comes to creating a Draco Lich, Draco Liches don't use phylacteries in the way that a typical Lich does. They instead use soul gems. Soul gems function similarly to a phylactery in that it is a repository for the soul when it doesn't have a body to inhabit. Okay. So if the Draco Lich is slain, its soul is instantly transported into the soul gem. And at any given time, an occupied soul gem can be taken to the corpse of another dragon. And by bringing the soul gem into physical contact with that dragon corpse, the soul can then transfer into the corpse and the Draco Lich is reanimated. Okay. Terrifying, but okay. So it functions more as a tether than a battery. And you don't have to feed souls into it. It just is. Well, dragons are special. That's just how they do. Yeah. Yeah. So a Draco Lich retains all of the resistances and immunities, as well as natural weapons, including breath weapons that it had in life. And it also gains the resistances and immunities that correspond with the undead template. So things like resistance to necrotic, immunity to poison, magic resistance, those sorts of things. Non-magical weapon resistance. Again, a Draco Lich is a pretty terrifying thing for your party to walk up against. Absolutely, yes. Though I am surprised, honestly, that a Draco Lich didn't pop up on our March Madness. Maybe because it was a variant and that's why we didn't see it. Draco Lich... As it exists in the 5th edition monster manual, it's almost more of a template than it is a monster. Okay. The one that is in the monster manual is a template based off of an adult blue dragon. Okay, and that's why, because we were dealing with ancient worms. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we were dealing with great worms, and that's why. Perfect. And a dragon has to be a true dragon, so you can't have wyvern draco liches, you can't have pseudo-dragon draco liches. It has to be a true dragon. And it has to be at least an adult. So it has to be an adult or an ancient dragon. If it's younger than that, the process kills it outright. Fair enough. That is canon. Don't ask me why. It's just canon. Because no one wants to deal with a Draco Lich Wormling. That'd be just be annoying as hell. Well, and then you end up getting into the same sort of 
things as like child vampires where yeah, their their body doesn't age. age. Yeah, that'd just be weird. Yeah, that's... Yeah, no. <laughs> We're not doing that. Right. So, in second edition, Draco Liches used to also have a paralysis on their attacks the same way that Liches do. Ooh. That has since been removed. That is not on the Draco Lich in fifth edition. But because it's still on the Lich in fifth edition, you can easily transfer that over. There you go. If your battle's not quite hard enough for your players, just go ahead and tack that one right on. Yeah, make them make a con save every time they get hit by this Draco Lich. Do you want to hear your party curse? This is how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing about Draco Liches is that a dragon can be turned into a Draco Lich long after it's already dead. That's just cheating. If the individuals performing the ritual can contact the soul of the dragon and negotiate with that soul and say, hey, we want to turn you into a Draco Lich. Are you cool with that? And get their permission. Then they can perform the ritual on the skeleton of the dragon, pull the soul back from whatever afterlife it's in, and slap it into the skeleton of this dragon, and bada bing, bada boom, you have a Draco Lich. Well, there you go. Um, But it is important to note that the soul of the dragon must be willing. You cannot compel a dragon's soul to return to become a Draco Lich. If the soul doesn't want to come back, it's never going to be a Draco Lich. Who was the ruby dragon again? I forget the name of the ruby dragon that we uh, have termized yeah. that perhaps is uh, part Sar, of the ruby rod. Star something. Yeah. Sargar? It's not Sargaris. No. Sargaris is, is wow. Warcraft. Yeah. But what if you had a piece of that and tried to Draco Lich that? Like, do you need the entire corpse or do you need just a piece of the corpse? You would need a whole body because the process of making a Draco Lich doesn't create a body. It doesn't reconstitute a body whenever the body is destroyed. You have to take the soul to a new body. Okay. So you wouldn't be able to create a Draco Lich with a fragment. You would have to have the entire body or at least enough of a body to be considered an entire entity. Okay. You'd have to have a complete or nearly complete skeleton in order to do that. Okay. No, that's fair. I was just wondering how horrifying can we make this Draco Lich? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because of the way that the reanimation portion works, it is perfectly feasible to have a Draco Lich walking around in a metallic dragon's body. Because it doesn't matter the color of the dragon. It's just the case. It just has to be an adult or older dragon. Okay. And you take that soul gem and you place the soul gem on the corpse and the soul of the Draco Lich occupies the body. Okay. That's it. it. Okay. Okay. Next up on our list (laughs) is the Alhoon or the Ilithalich. I like (laughs) Ilithalich. Depending on edition, these could be the same thing or these could be different things. In third edition, they were kind of muddled to mean the same thing, but they are actually two different forms of illithid lichdom. Okay. Both are incredibly rare because arcane spellcraft is considered very taboo among the illithid. And if discovered, an illithid who has been practicing this is purged from the colony. Typically, they run away before they can be you know, purged. executed. Yeah. But but yes, they are removed from the colony. The Alhoon and the Illithlich are easily identifiable from other illithids because 
as part of the process, the undeath portion, their skin no longer secretes the mucus needed to keep their skin moist. And so their flesh turns this pallid gray and starts getting all dry and cracked and crumbly. And, you know, the flesh is not fresh. The flesh is not fresh. (laughs) So the difference between an elitholich and an alhoon is that elitholiches are actually true liches. They're illithids that have managed to gain enough arcane prowess to actually properly perform the rituals to become an actual lich. Okay. They are incredibly rare because the illithid brain is not set up to practice arcane magic. Arcane magic, right. It's on different wavelengths completely. Yeah, it would be a pure form of madness to them. Yes. This would be your eldritch horror or your eldritch madness would be arcane magic to the illithid, where it is so yes. beyond how what their mind can comprehend. And probably, I mean... You can go into the reasons why arcane magic is taboo and banned, but this would be a good reason to feed into for storyline as well. I'm sure that it is set up in lore somewhere. I just didn't get around to looking for it. But Alhoons use a combination of arcane and psionic rituals to achieve a lesser but similar state of free world undeath. Okay. So the ritual requires at least three arcane-minded illithids, with an equal number of mortal souls to be sacrificed over the course of a three-day period to do the ritual. Okay. At the end of the ritual, they create an object called a periapt of mind trapping. Basically, it is a communal phylactery for the Alhoons. That sounds messy. Kind of. (laughs) At the end of the ritual, they are all automatically transformed, and the duration of undeath for the members depends on the age of the souls they placed into the periapt. Okay. So the older the creature that they sacrificed to create the periapt, the more undeath they have. So if you take a 200-year-old elf, you get 200 years. If you have a 35-year-old human, you get 35 years. Okay. The difference is they can actually repeat the ritual later on and basically reset the clock on it. I like that. I really like that as a concept. And again, this leads into some great story hooks. Oh, this would be great. You could do this and cross it somehow with like a Logan's Run type thing where like you've got a community wide euthanasia because, well, we can't support all our elders for something, but they are all like under psionic control of these Alhoons. So they are sending the elderly away so they can go through and select the ones they want to get put into this parapet. Oh, I think grannies are going missing from the retirement home. Yeah, I can see that too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so an Alhoon that is slain has its consciousness drawn into the periapt. Okay. But because it is not true lichdom, they can never reconstitute a body from the periapt. Um, there may be a way to magically transfer their consciousness into a new body that is never actually laid out, but it's insinuated that once they are dead and their consciousness is stuck in the periapt with every other soul that has ever been put into it. Yeah, okay. That'd be a bit of an issue. (laughs) Yeah. They are still able to communicate with the other Alhoons that are tied to the periapt, but they can't actually 
do anything. Gotcha. I could see that leading to some very fun and tasty forms of madness for yeah. your NPC. Well, this has got sentient magic item written all over it. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, you find this necklace that gives you all of these great bonuses, but you've got, you know, a trio of illithids talking at you all the time. And they're, (laughs) I would say that they're tormented by the souls that they've fed into this thing as well. So they are not happy sentient entities within this item. Yeah, you could do a lot with this. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. And finally, if the periapt is ever destroyed, all of the souls within it, as well as any Alhoons tied to it, are also instantly destroyed. As you do. As you do. Okay, that's perfectly reasonable and fair. It's a sweet release. Again, sometimes death is a well-deserved release, and Oblivion is wonderful, and you can finally sleep. <laughs> Was all that right. a little dark? I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, that's okay, because we're going to have a light patch right now. Yay! Next up are the Arch Liches. This is actually what inspired this episode. Another creator on Twitter, Jack the Giant Killer, at Jack Gogsbain, had a supplement that he did recently where he created an Arch Lich because he was unsatisfied with the vanilla Lich that is in... Uh, the monster manual. Gotcha. Now I will say these feel just wrong to me. And the more I do this podcast, the more I really look at my personal alignment. I'm like, dude, really, really? Okay. Yeah, fine. I'm going to embrace it. These feel wrong. These are terrible. (laughs) And my attention was brought to this thread by the guys over at Goblin's Corner commenting on it and talking about how they were bummed because traditionally arch liches are good aligned. Right. In more recent years, Arch Lich has been used both for good aligned liches and for just exceptionally powerful liches. Right. But traditionally, according to canon, the Arch Lich is a good aligned lich. That just feels um, wrong. I just can't hang I can't hang with it. <laughs> these are liches that typically turn to undeath to serve as a sort of protector or guardian right. or to achieve some noble purpose that cannot be completed in a single mortal lifetime. So again, we talked about why would you be a lich? And this would be one of those things where you are going to become some sort of divine protector or guardian of a realm or an area or maybe a kingdom. And so you've either you know, gone through the study and generally you don't do this in the same way you do normal lichdom. So this would almost always be a divine gift. And so your good aligned or possibly neutral aligned deity would grant you this so you could do their work in the mortal realm as you could. Again, kind of a whole fighting fire with fire type scenario that you've done well, people like you, you're heroic. So Good job, you get to be a lich. You don't have to steal souls to do it. It feels icky. (laughs) One example of an arch lich from Forgotten Realms lore is an individual. Her name is Alephine Moonstar. She is a prominent wizard in Waterdeep. She runs a tavern called the Blushing Mermaid, and she was a very devoted follower of Selun, the goddess of the moon. And she had a twin brother who ended up abandoning Selun and starting to worship Shar, who is basically Selun's evil twin. She's the goddess of night and she's very evil and stuff. But he ended up becoming a death knight in service to Shar. And so she pursued and uh, performed the rituals to become an arch lich because her entire goal is to hunt down and destroy her brother. 
Okay. Who is this very powerful death knight. I like it. So that is her noble purpose. And there are some other ones like wizards who were slain before their time. And so their gods give them another chance and why they didn't just resurrect them in their normal living bodies. I don't know. It's called plot armor. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Again, generally these demi liches, again, because there is going to be arch such liches, arch liches. I'm sorry. Yes. Again, yeah, these arch demi liches are something completely different. <laughs> yes. Again, Arch liches feel wrong, but because these arch liches are almost always going to be divine inspired because it has to come from a divine source where you're not stealing and consuming souls. Not necessarily. There is there is a good aligned way to steal someone's soul. No, because the way you become an arch lich does not involve taking souls. It does not involve the sacrifice of mortal souls. It is a ritual of self-sacrifice. Okay. So it is a selfless act as opposed to a selfish act, which is why it is a typically good aligned thing as opposed to a typically evil aligned thing. Did I say these feel dirty? These feel dirty. That said, I could see what would make a good archlich in this case would be a monk. Could you imagine an archlich monk? Yeah. Because I mean, it would were... be difficult to get the whole making the whole ritual work. But right. yeah, I can... I can they were see that. Able to channel their key to a point where they could do it because a monk would be that kind of self giving, self sacrificing, depending on your monk type. But you could imagine a monk very easily being that self giving, self sacrificing type. And again, their magic isn't quite arcane. It's not quite divine ish, but it kind of hits that weird middle ground. I think that would be a good flavor for this. Yeah. Especially whenever you're tying it into the monk's 20th level ability. Yeah. Their capstone ability that was a timeless body where yeah. they don't suffer the effects of old age. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not like the druid where you just don't die of old age. Right. You just don't age. Yeah. You still die whenever you reach the end of your lifespan, but you don't really age. You don't, you don't get old. You don't, yeah. you don't become decrepit. Correct. Yeah. Again, potential for, for ideas. I love it. And there is a very specific subcategory of Archlich within Forgotten Realms lore called the Bailnorn. Bailnorn are hereditary guardians of elven houses, specifically within the city of Mithdranor. It is a city with a whole lot of history that I'm not going to get into because that <laughs> could be its own two-hour episode. So, yeah. I mean, it is a city in Forgotten Realms lore where you have a canonical portal to reach Kryn so you can get from Forgotten Realms to Dragonlance. Oh, nice. I like it. <laughs> Definitely have to dive into that one. <laughs> yeah, especially with the Dragonlance book coming out in September, October. I'm kind of looking forward to that. But yeah, so they are these archliches that serve as hereditary advisors, you know, as protectors of family knowledge, protectors of family secrets and the vaults of knowledge and treasure within the homes of these elven noble families. And this is where we start pulling on some bard liches. Yeah. All right. So that's our good aligned arch liches. Next up is something completely different. <laughs> the lich fiend. This is the other side of the coin. This is definitely the other side of the coin. Lich fiends are a type of lich from third edition. They are devils or demons that have attained the power and ability necessary to become a lich. 
Right. And again, these are going to be a clerical or a divine type magical lich versus an arcane magic lich. I don't know. I think that this is still going to be an arcane type lich. Okay. Because if you think about it, you know, Orcus is a demon capable of bestowing the knowledge to become a lich. Fair enough. To an arcane caster. I mean, because, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be divine. Okay. Because they are not inherently divine creatures. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no. That's, yeah. I would say that if you were to take Melifleur, who we talked about last week. Yes. Again, a very Melifleur would fall under the category of a Lich Fiend. Yes. At least initially, because now he is... Semi-divine. A, yeah, semi-divine entity. Now, Vecna apparently is a lich as well, which I, I saw that. Yes, to... Vecna definitely started as a lich. Lich, yeah. So. Vecna started <laughs> way early on. Yeah. I mean, Vecna is almost as old as liches in general Themselves. in D&D. Right. I really I need to he... dive into some Vecna lore. I have been neglecting Vecna. Vecna was first described in Supplement 3 Eldritch Wizardry in 1976. Nice. So yes, Vecna has been around for a while. He started off as just a lich, and then he has since become a god. In 3rd edition, he was still just a demigod. In 5th edition, he is now considered a full god, I think. I think so as well. Again, I have unfortunately been neglecting my Vecna lore. I do need to do (laughs) a deep dive. Which, as a future series, doing deep dive episodes on the different pantheons and deities would be actually a fun thing to do. We need to put that down on the whiteboard. Yeah, Greyhawk is going to take like five months. Because (laughs) there's like 78 gods in that pantheon. (laughs) Anyway, just wrapping up the Lich Fiend real quick. There's not a whole lot about them. There's only like three paragraphs in the Libris Mortis book talking about how a Lich Fiend is created. They have to have at least five spell-like abilities. They have to have the Craft Wondrous item feat. You need your phylactery still. And they have to have at least 11 levels in a caster class. Again, we discussed that earlier within the Libris Mortem. The lowest level Lich you could find was, in fact, an 11th level caster. So, again, that makes perfect sense. And some of the fiends listed from the Monster Manual that were capable of becoming Lich fiends without any additional modification included Baylor, Merliths, Succubi, and Pit Fiends. Okay, yeah, those all seem fairly reasonable to drop a template on. I like it. Right. The last one we're going to cover in any real detail is the Bane Lich. The Bane Lich also comes from Forgotten Realms. It comes from the same area of the world as the Bailnorns because the city of Mithdranor ended up falling to demons and then the cult of Bane moved in and there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. But Bane Liches are specifically divine liches, very specifically priests of Bane, hence the name. Makes sense. So every 50 to 60 years, he would choose one of his most powerful clerics and bestow upon them the knowledge to become a lich. As the prerequisite, they had to be at least 17th level clerics, and they would continue to gain one cleric level every 100 years after their transformation. They're hanging around a while. Yeah. So now time for a list of... Liches that I didn't have time to research and we don't have time to cover. (laughs) But they're there. But they're there. There's the Dry Lich from the Sandstorm supplement from 3rd edition. Okay. I think they're kind of like a mummy lord, but they did it to themselves on purpose. Yeah, that's generally how those are going to form up. Sua Lich 
from the Greyhawk setting. I kind of gather that these are also a sort of divine lich because the only Suel thing I could find with Greyhawk refers to a pantheon. The Fire Lich and Master Lich from the Spelljammer setting. Again, some fun stuff coming up soon. And then a whole bunch of stuff from the Ravenloft setting from various Ravenloft books, including the Psionic Lich. Psionic Liches are terrifying. The Defiler and Demi-Defiler Lich. Various Drow Liches, including Drow Priestess and Drow Wizard Liches. Drider Liches. Sweet Jesus. And Elemental and Demi-Elemental Liches. Of those, I think the Psionic Liches and the Drow Liches would be the scariest. Maybe the Drider Liches. Oh, I think Drider Liches. Yeah, Drider Lich would be, oh my god. That's a whole big old bag of nope. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to leave my dice on the table and I'm taking the session off. Bye, guys. (laughs) Yeah. So here at the end, I want to take a little bit of time to just sort of brainstorm how to incorporate a lich into your game. Because liches in and of themselves make excellent final villains. They really do. Because they have the intellect and the curiosity and the reasons to interfere even from a low level all the way through a campaign. Absolutely. You can have a lich set up as your big bad from session one. Yes. And the whole time you are just dealing with the minions of this lich and dealing with the repercussions of this lich's meddling in the world. Yes. And throughout the whole thing, this lich is gathering information on your party because as your party starts to gain power, as they start to gain reputation, as they start to gain influence, they're going to draw the attention of this lich. And this lich is going to start sending stronger and stronger things after them to interfere with their ability to mess with his plans. They're going to try and kill them. They're going to try and recruit them. They're going to try and misdirect them to get them out of the way so that they can perform their little plot without their interference. All of those sorts of things. Yeah, liches really do have potential to be the ultimate puppet masters because they can be around forever. They have nothing but time. And obviously they've built up you know, vast amounts of resources, but yet they still have to have a constant influence and draw because they still have to have minions or whatever to feed into this phylactery. So yeah, I really like this. And we've touched on some ideas of various liches, whether it's going to be the Alhoon or maybe some campaign for a Draco lich or just, you know, your everyday whatever lich. I think these do leave lots and lots of possibilities. So how would you want to form this up? And another thing, you know, at the end of this campaign, you know, after the party has managed to overcome all of the things that this lich has been able to throw in their way, and they're like, we're done dealing with the minions. Let's go to the source, right? Yeah. That lich is going to stay in their stronghold. That Absolutely. lich is going to make them come to him. Yes. And if that lich has been around for any real length of time, let's That's say going to be a let's fun just dungeon crawl. Let's just say that this lich has been inhabiting this stronghold for the last 300 years. That lich has had a lot of time to put a lot of magical protection on that stronghold. Right. Absolutely. You're going to have things like, and he's going to take, and I keep using he, you can have female or non-binary liches too. Oh yeah, of course. But if they're taking the time to really make their stronghold secure, they can throw all of these different caveats into their glyphs and wards that they're using to protect their stronghold. So let's say, for instance, they have a bunch of spells set up as protective spells around the top of the wall. 
So that way, if someone tries to climb over the wall, this this glyph goes off. And those would probably be, they'll do some damage, but I would see these as primarily alarm spells. They're going to be big, loud, and flashy. You know, uh, a thunderclap. Yes. You know, or a thunder wave. Yes. You know, you just clear the wall and you get hit with a thunder wave and knocked back off the wall. And that's a 20 foot wall. So now you're taking fall damage. But, you know, things like that or even things like, you know, fairy fire. Yeah. So now you're glittery and everyone can see you. Yep. You get no hide and everybody gets advantage. (laughs) (laughs) But then they can modify their glyphs and the criteria of their glyphs so that only a living creature of a certain size or bigger will set it off. So that they can have, you know, whites patrolling the walls as guards because whites are undead. They're never going to set off those glyphs. Yep. I love so that. the party can sit there in cover and observe the walls for days and watch the patrol patterns and figure out exactly when they're going to sneak in. And that rogue gets their grappling hook out and throws it up and they scurry up the wall and they climb over the wall. And as soon as they climb over the wall, because they are a living creature above a certain size, it sets off that glyph. I love it. And another thing to keep in mind that you can use as a DM to instill a certain amount of dread or a certain amount of false sense of security in your party, depending on where your party's brain space is. If they're sneaking in and not running into traps... That's because that's the way the Lich wants them to come in. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. This is the safe corridor that the Lich is providing you to lure you into the trap. Yes, I love it. Again, just because the types of spell these Liches are going to use, once you're in there, you're probably going to have a lot of necromantic magic in here as well. So what if... Necromancy and evocation. Yep. So as you come walking in here, what if your party starts encountering the corpses or zombies or forms of either old friends that have passed throughout the campaign or old villains and enemies they have fought? And they're like, wait, we buried you like... Old sessions, you're, you're here now, you know, and so you can do that to kind of play with the mindset of your party. Again, the traps, the patrols, all of this is great. And then when you actually get to the lich, you have to remember this is going to be a very high level caster, and it's probably going to have a really healthy blend of arcane and divine magic at its fingertips as well. And so these traps and these encounters while you're trying to get through this dungeon is just going to be this constant drain and draw on your party's resources and abilities. And by the time you get to the Lich, he's set up for 300 years. He's fresh and ready to go. Oh yeah. And he's going to have wands. He's going to have spell scrolls. He's going to have all sorts of magic items. He's going to have undead minions that are going to come out and help him. He's going to have cultists that are devoted to him that are going to come out and help him. He's going it's to have going summons. To be, yeah, it's going to be just Oh, beautiful. it's going to be, yeah. Oh, God, we got to get um, out of the table. We, I need to throw some dice. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I love about a lich is that if your party gets lucky and your BBEG accidentally dies early, that's not a problem for a lich. That is motivation for a lich. Yep. Because now that lich is going to reconstitute at their phylactery and they're going to be pissed. Yeah. That is another thing you can do with your party. Depending on how long you want this campaign to run, you can totally do the whole JRPG trope and throw this lich on early at the beginning or midway. And yeah, sure, they kill the lich. So what? He's reconstituting back at his phylactery, wherever the hell it's at. They don't know where it's at yet. So he just pops back up and now he's pissed and even stronger. And maybe he's more ready for the party this time. You know, each time. Oh, he is going to be more ready. 
because he he knows their tricks now. He right. has encountered so, them. He has fought them. So each time they knock him down, he is more prepared and more ready, and he's just more vengeful and spiteful. Yeah, I love it. I love witches. Yeah. They are great, great things to drop on the table. And now finally, the last thing that I wanted to cover is an adventure hook for an archlich. Okay. Because a lot of them are archliches because they have a purpose they need to perform. They have a service they need to do and that they can't rest until that's done. So the obvious thing here is they are recruiting the party to help them achieve their purpose so that they can pass on. I like it. Yeah. That They're would like, be... I have been an archlich for 600 years. And I'm just freaking tired. I have to do this thing. And the thing that I have to do, you know, this person that I have to kill keeps staying one step ahead of me. I can't do this by myself. I have to have some help. I need you to help me. Oh, we could have some hot lich on lich action. Liches on and liches. I mean... <laughs> no, yeah. but that would be a perfect reason. Again, it kind of goes in with that the Death Knight story where you have a lich and then an arch lich to counter that lich, which would be a perfect divine inspiration if that lich was bad enough. And so, yeah, that lich is trying to pull resources and party members and it's taken centuries or millennia. That would be, yeah, just a beautiful story arc to build. Or it may even be one of those things where, Twins. you know, Twin liches. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> but it could be one of those things where they are able to find one another very easily and they regularly end up running into each other and finding each other and one of them ends up dying. But the Archlich doesn't know where the Lich's phylactery is. is. Yes. He thinks he knows. And what he's actually needing is for the party to infiltrate where he thinks the phylactery is and destroy the phylactery so that the next time he fights the lich, he can destroy the lich and then be done. I like that. And I would do this towards the end of the campaign session, but maybe the evil lich knows this about the arch lich and somehow has found the arch lich's phylactery and set it in place. So would your party recognize... Well, arch liches don't have phylacteries. They don't have any phylactery at all? No. Okay, then never mind. Their essence is bound to an object in a similar sort of way. It's typically a spell book. Okay, but you could find that Archlich's point of binding and seeing if the party would recognize it as such. Or do they destroy their own Lich? But the way that I can see this playing out, because canonically, Liches are able to scry on their phylactery for free at all times. Okay. So if anything happens to their phylactery, if anything comes close to their phylactery, they're going to know. They're going to know, but would the party know? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. So the party finds the phylactery. The lich knows that the party finds the phylactery. The lich teleports to his phylactery. Oh. The lich engages the party. The arch lich teleports in deus ex. Okay, I like it. And then you end up having this great big firefight between the lich and the arch lich and the party and whatever guardians the lich has set up to protect his phylactery because he's gonna have like flesh golems and stone golems and iron golems and stuff or he's going to have various very powerful like a draco zombie or something like that yeah, that he's this- going to have set up to protect his phylactery or Wraith, or just, you know, he might have just a great, well-funded, well-trained personal army there. You know, I mean, hey, sometimes you need a physical bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah, you could do all oh, kinds yeah, of stuff knights. with this. It'd be, he's, got, yeah. he's got like oh, half a yeah. dozen death knights. Yes, I love it. He has a retinue. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, 
There we go. And that is the climax of your campaign. Yeah, I love it. You know, you've snuck into the Lich's stronghold while the Arch Lich has him distracted. And you manage to finally get to the chamber where his phylactery is hidden. And you get to it, but you can't get it yet because the Guardians come and intervene. And because the Guardians are intervening, now the party is fighting the Guardians. And then the Lich shows up. Because the Lich is aware that something hanky is going on. Right. And then the Archlich shows up and it's just fireworks everywhere. I love it. Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> All right. Now the trick is going to be the 90 plus sessions leading up to that. Um, exactly. We leave that to <laughs> DM's discretion. <laughs> so I think that's going to do it for today. Uh, this ended up running a good bit longer than I intended it to. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of it fun. It was. It was a lot of fun and it was a lot of catharsis for what we needed today. Yeah, again, we definitely so, needed a full double-footed dive into some fantasy and escapism. So, All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. We hope that you've enjoyed and took something useful from all of our rambling and ranting. <laughs> if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, all under common taste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. If you want to help support the show financially, please consider coming and becoming a patron. Finally, we are also on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord in our show notes. You can find this and all our other podcasts on your favorite podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Google, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify. As always, please subscribe and give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and it lets us know what you want to hear more of. Next week, we're going to try and get part one of Bytopia out. I can't promise because that's going to be a whole, whole bunch <laughs> of notes. But I'm going to try and get that together and we're going to try and do Bytopia for next week. So Excellent. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you then. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.